This time on time. The sun rose earlier, I saw that too. Um, first of all, good morning everyone and welcome to the, all the new people that came this morning actually and checked in this morning. What a beautiful morning and what a way how to start the day and this retreat with singing together, with having a good breakfast and being just together here. So, um, actually I don't want to say much. If you have anything that you need, uh, you can always ask me, come to me and I try to help and support you with anything that you have with the rooms and so on. And first, before we start, patience, I was looking for you. Where are you? It's your birthday today, so I think we can maybe sing another song for you. <laughs> Happy birthday to Okay, just a couple of announcements. Um, so, I saw all the babies are actually already at the nursery downstairs. Um, we have, I think, eight babies today there. So they have a handful of work to do and three nice um, people that handle them. If you see them, just say thanks for you because they do a big and important job. We also have the children's program, I think. I saw that they are all ready to go into the woods. They will spend the whole morning uh, outdoors and have lunch together and we'll be back by a little bit be before four o'clock and then th the youth we have with us too this morning and you will go in the afternoon to have a party on the mountain so you will also have outdoor lunch and I think you meet at 12 15 in front of the chapel <laughs> and you will be back at four too because at four we will have our big IPC um, fun or fu all IPC family fun event. Um, it will be great. As much as I can say, we will build a church together. So let's see how we do this. Um, yeah, that's about it. There will be a coffee break at around 10.30 this time. Like we learned from last year that it's good to have a coffee ready for you, orange juice and water, our main building for a short break, and that's about it. May Andy, if you could lead us in prayer. Should I give a brief little introduction of Justin too? Okay, so um, good morning. For those of you that were not here last evening, um, maybe just a quick little introduction to my friend Justin McRoberts, who is our speaker today. Justin uh, was born in Oakland, California, and has lived in uh, Concord and Martinez in the East Bay area of San Francisco Bay Area, if you're familiar with that area. And uh, he is a singer-songwriter, and he is a uh, author. And actually, just in the next couple of days, your book releases, is that correct? Okay, so a brand new book of his is actually releasing this week. Um, and he gave me a copy of it the other day, and I'm very excited about it. Um, he'll tell you more about 
about the subject of that book, I think even this morning. And um, Justin is here because um, he's, um, he's, as he said yesterday, he's hoping not so much that he comes here and begins something new with us, like he comes, flies in from San Francisco, drops this wonderful wisdom on our congregation and leaves and then all of a sudden we're new and different and awesome, but rather he's convinced that God is already at work everywhere in his universe, but especially in his church uh, through the spirit of Jesus Christ to do something fresh and new and um, authentic and Christ honoring in communities like ours. So he's, he's convinced of that and he's here to just kind of throw uh, fuel on the already burning flames of the Holy Spirit um, in this place. I'm excited for his ministry here today and tomorrow morning as well. Uh, before he comes up, how about if I lead us in prayer, okay? Uh, gracious God, we are so thankful for your world and uh, it's so good to know that we have a loving father who has made a world for his own delight, for your own delight, and that you delight to see us in your world taking our place, becoming who you've called us to be, and allowing us to speak into one another's lives, to pray into one another's lives, to invest in one another's lives, in community like this, so that we can be what you've created us to be more and more each day. We thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus that frees us from the burden of pretending to be who we are not yet, and for that same power which is at work in us to renew us and to make us more like your beloved son, whom you love and in whom you deeply love us as well. So pour your spirit out on, on my friend Justin and give us grace as well to open our hearts, minds, and even to open our church to what he has to say, trusting that you will use all that we experience today and tomorrow to bind us together in love and to show us how to be a community of disciples that honors you and that brings hope and joy to one another and to the world around us. So with all that in mind, we give you this day and we're excited for what you'll do with it. We pray together in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Let's give Justin a welcome, shall we? Morning. It's always a little bit dangerous to clap before someone does something. I hope to earn that. Um, I really love... Um, the sound of people singing together. Um, it's one of the privileges that if, if you are a song leader, one of the gifts you receive as a song leader is to hear the congregation, is to be hopefully proficient enough in your own task, your own work, that you can play and accompany the sound of a room of people singing together. There is a particular beauty. It's something to hear someone who's a great singer as an individual sing a song. 
It is something entirely different to hear a congregation of people, some of whom are not great singers, <laughs> sing together. In fact, isn't there something about being perhaps not a great singer and adding your voice to what ultimately becomes a beautiful moment? We are simply more beautiful together. As beautiful as any one of us can be, as beautiful as any particular voice can be, there might not be a song, a sound quite as majestic as masses of people singing and singing in harmony together. A number of years ago, uh, I was leading a retreat for high school students in California. Yeah. Uh, students from the ages of 13 to 17, many of whom were brand new to the practice of faith. And at one point, uh, they were invited as students to respond to I believe we've been there for two days, to respond to two days of songs and stories and Bible study with what they called a graffiti wall. So they had this big open space, six or seven canvases, and students were, they they were afforded crayons or pens or pencils or any number of different mediums, and they could pick it up and paint something or draw whatever they want, however they wanted to respond. And I remember at the time, after two days of being there as a speaker, I was not in the best mood uh, because they were a tough crowd. The 13-year-olds had an attention span of about 43 seconds. (laughs) The question and answer times were odd usually way off track, going nowhere near where I wanted to be. And I remember walking up to this wall in not the best mood, and this, like I said, six or seven large canvases strung together, and I walked up to, to a corner of it, and I, and I read what one of these students had written with pencil, and it was in the direction of spiritual. It was very immature. Oh. And then I moved on and I saw this drawing that one of these other students had made of kind of a sunset with the sun and there were some birds and it was very cliche. And then I moved on and I saw another drawing. It was also relatively poorly done. Over here, there was someone who quoted scripture somewhat accurately. <laughs> and I was... I was discouraged (laughs) until I took a step back and I saw the whole thing and I saw it the way God sees it. This, what could look like chaos but isn't, this menagerie, this binding together, this multifaceted expression, this response to the work of God and it was truly beautiful. There is something to be said, something deeply true to be said for the work of sanctification, the work of growth in my life as a person. I wonder though, if the beauty of my life is not truly complete 
in the heavenly view unless it is attached to, associated with the work of sanctification and wholeness, the work of growth in the lives of the people that I'm connected to. There is a kind of beauty that comes with us growing together that my incompleteness, my immaturity, my shortcomings in relationship with yours as we communicate as best we can, as we share as best we can, as we express as best we can, this is what I see the work of God in my life to be. I wonder if from the heavenlies, there is a certain kind of beauty that's really only accessible, really only achievable if we are in life together. We are more beautiful together than we are on our own, which is where we started last night to be together in the process of life. And I mentioned last night that there were really two important words in the phrase. The one we're hanging out in is we are together. We're in this together. But we're not just in this together just to be in it together. We are in a process together. And we talked about this word process. That for me, the important element of the word process is that maturity in the Christian faith, maturity as a person, is not an arrival point. I don't get to a point at any place in my life in which I am done growing. It is commitment to the process. It's that Christ has begun a work in me. Christ has begun a work in us. And maturity is committing to that work and knowing there will always be a next step. But that's what we commit to when we commit to togetherness. I commit to your process as well. This is where I say, can I get an amen? Amen. This person on fire. <laughs> we talked about the fact that, that the mountain doesn't look like a mountain when you get to it. That the vision, the idea of community is beautiful and it's enticing and I want it. The idea of relationship is beautiful and it's enticing and I want it. And the vision of that from a distance draws me to the foot of the mountain. But once I get to the mountain... The mountain doesn't look like a mountain anymore. It looks like 400 feet of dirt and work. The relationship, the community, as an idea, as a vision, it's beautiful from a distance. And when I arrive there, you look like work. <laughs> and the trick is not to take a step back and go look for another mountain. I coach artists all the time. And every young artist I talk to has seven, 10, 15, 20 projects they've quit on. Because they had a vision of what it was supposed to look like. They got into it. It stopped looking like the vision, started looking like work. They turned around, they saw another mountain in the distance and started going over here. The trick, the discipline, the work, the goodness of life together is to actually fall in love with that 400 feet of dirt. To fall in love with the 400, 400 feet of dirt that is the person next to me. The 400 feet of dirt that is what it would take, the steps, the nitty gritty, the, 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 the one foot in front of the other steps it takes for me to live life with other people because it's day to day. So this morning, uh, I want to begin 
where I think it really begins in Christ. Um, and I'll, I'll get, to, uh, well, I'll come back to that shape in a moment. We're going to talk about together in prayer. I hope that when I say the word prayer, and I'll come back to this uh, later on, I, that you feel some of what I have felt when I talk about prayer. There are some assumptions. One, prayer scares me. It makes me kind of uncomfortable, naturally, because I'm not good at it. I'm just not. I've been a Christian since I was 18. I'm 45 now. That's more than 10 years. All my math really stops at 10 because I was an English major and a philosophy minor. And after this many years of being a Christian, I still confess I'm not, I'm not a truly great devotionalist. Prayer is a work for me. The other thing is I consider prayer an individual work. It's something I have to work out. Turns out, in Christ, neither one of those things is true. I'm not bad at prayer, neither are you. And prayer is not a thing I work out in and of my own self. So the question about prayer, about process of life together in any, in any facet is, how did and how does Jesus live? Again, where we were last night is that this is the shape of the life of Jesus. One way to understand how Jesus lived is that his life was one whole life in which he had a relationship with the Father. We're going to spend most of our time here this morning. He had a relationship with the Father that he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. That his life was rooted in prayer. He also had the work of his life, the healings, the teachings, the cross and the resurrection itself. And the theme of our weekend, he had people that he practiced his life with. Now, what I talked about last night was I tend to divide that up where I have my devotional life over here, my social life over here, and the work of my life over here. But what we find in Christ is my life is one whole life. That my devotional life, if my devotional life is out of whack, everything else is out of whack. If my social life is askew, everything else feels a little askew. It is one life and it moves together. And we can pay attention to facets, but these facets are deeply interrelated. So we want to talk about this morning the relationship between my devotional life and my social life. What's it look like for me to be a person of prayer living in community? Because that's actually how it works. I'm not a person who prays and has community. I'm a person of prayer living in community. So, prayer. Maybe you think you're bad at it. Maybe you're like me and uh, when you come to prayer, the first three to 10 minutes of prayer is you apologizing to God for not praying enough. <laughs> Hi, Lord, sorry, it's been a minute. There's a lot written about prayer in the scriptures. There's volumes and volumes written about prayer after the scriptures. I've written two books in the direction of prayer. So much to be written about prayer. I've come to believe this and I've come to practice this in my life. There's one particular verse about prayer that I think explores and it exposes the essence of prayer found in this text from Matthew. The very beginning of the ministry life of Jesus. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There are a few things for this, in this for me, and I think for us. The one is the simple, it's not quite a formula, but the simple announcement. You're mine. I love you, and I'm proud of you. Basic bottom line here, there isn't a human on the planet who graduates from needing to hear that. You're mine, I love you, and I'm proud of you. I think that is the essence of prayer. You are loved by God. You belong to him. He's proud of you. You're a daughter of the living God. He loves you. He's proud of you. You're a son of the living God. He loves you. He's proud of you. I think that's the essence of prayer. I think all prayer emanates from that place. The other element of this for me is its location in the story of Jesus. Because this announcement from God, you're my son, I'm proud of you, I love you, it happens before Jesus has healed anyone. It happens before Jesus has announced that he's the Messiah to anyone. It happens before he's gathered the disciples. It happens before he's, he's performed almost any of the miracles. It happens before the work and ministry life of Jesus that we recognize as the life of Jesus, which is to say that the work of Jesus' life is an outpouring of who he is as God's son. And I think that's how the relationship between prayer and social life and prayer and work actually plays out. God's not proud of me because I've accomplished the things that he set out for me to accomplish. God's proud of me because I'm his son. And what I accomplish in this world is rooted in his love for me, is an outpouring of his love for me. Can I get an amen? Amen. It takes me to this. Luke chapter 11 this group of men who've been following Jesus around, we call them the disciples. At some point, they've seen him practice prayer enough. They start to take note of this regular practice he has, of taking time aside, of listening for, listening to the Father. And this is the way Luke writes it. He says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Thank you for the specific Luke. He was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. We've heard this prayer. We call it the Our Father. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And it's a beautiful gift that Jesus has given us. What I'm mostly moved by as I read this text these days is this moment right here. Lord, teach us to pray. These weren't just a few people. These were grown men. And they weren't just grown men. They were grown men who'd grown up around religious culture where they'd been taught what it looked like to pray since they were needed. They were around religion their whole lives. It was a deep what kind of humility to say out as an adult 
I don't know what I'm doing. Can someone help me? I don't know what I'm doing. Hey, Lord, teach me to pray. There are two elements of this. For me, the humility of saying that. And the humility necessary to not just say it the one time, because if, when you're 12, teach me to pray. But if you've been alive long enough, you don't pray in your 20s like you did when you were a teenager. Somebody say amen. And then you don't pray in your 30s after you've had a career for a minute the way you did in your 20s. Somebody say amen. You do not pray after you've had children the way you did before you had children. Somebody say amen. Your life changes constantly and in the same way you cannot exercise in your 50s the way you did when you were 23 you cannot pray in your 50s the way you did when you first started following Jesus so regularly as a model in humility coming to the Lord and to our community and saying, teach me to pray. But more than that, us. Teach us. Teach us to pray. And I'll dig into this much more deeply as we go along in, in bits and cran- in nooks and crannies and, and little bits of stories. I'll say it flat out here. Your spiritual life, your, your spiritual well-being does not belong to you. Your spiritual health is part of how the people around you are healthy. So when you don't know how to pray, one of the most healing, wonderful things you can offer to the person next to you is say, I need to figure some stuff out too. Part of the reason we don't talk about prayer, and I'll get into it, is because we feel like we're we're supposed to know how to do this. And if everyone feels like you're supposed to know how to do this, no one talks about the fact that we don't. Or that we feel lost. And what a gift it is to say, go with me. Let's talk about this. What are you trying? What are you not doing anymore? We'll come back to that. So let's talk about some obstacles. And maybe this is what your spiritual prayer life feels like as you're working through some stuff. Some obstacles in the way of prayer. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on obstacles. Um, I'm going to point out really kind of one. When I talk with my friend, uh, I talk with my friend Scott, who's actually, he was a, an artist with whom I, I did this book that comes out on Tuesday. And Scott does this whole work around obstacles. And it's this head fake. He does this sermon series. It's like a four-part sermon series. I'm exposing him right now. It's a four-part sermon series about the obstacles to prayer. And what he does is you look through all these things that are obstacles. That, hey, you've got children and they wake up. You, you, know, you wake up before dawn just like Jesus and then your kids are like, morning! And you can't pray because your kids are there. Or your work life starts to invade all, and, it just, and you've got that obstacle. And what Scott does at the tail end of this is, is, is he ultimately says, these aren't necessarily obstacles. Some of these are actually invitations. Some of these are your life saying, you're not who you used to be. Learn to pray the way you are now. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time around obstacles. We'll get into them when they're particular. I want to talk about this particular obstacle that I think is pervasive. 
If I Google the word prayer, if I just plug prayer in to the Google machine, this is, these, are, these are like a few of the top images associated with the word prayer. And when I look at these images, I learn a lot about what's wrong with my practice of prayer. Because very clearly, I've been praying at the wrong time of day. <laughs> it's a sunset activity. Also, I didn't know you could get a Bible with the glory of the Lord attached. It just comes in it. I got my Bible at a Barnes and Noble. It's just paper. It does not know. I didn't know. I would have spent extra money for the glory. Also, hands folder like this or arms up. These are your options. This one, eyes closed. Arms up. That's it. Now, I'm joking. Kind of. I mean, you know I'm joking. Here's the other side of that. As much as I can poke fun, as much as I like play around the other side of the coin for me and probably for you, is something in the back of my mind has kind of convinced me that if my prayer life doesn't feel like that looks, at least on occasion, something must be wrong in my soul. Somebody say amen. Like I can poke fun, I can say ha ha, but something in the back of my mind has convinced me that if I don't have an experience that feels like this, or feels like this, or feels like the warmth of the sunset, on occasion, that something must be wrong with my soul. So here I'll preach. There's nothing wrong with having an experience of Jesus. I hope you do have an experience of Jesus. But please, don't chase experiences of Jesus. Chase Jesus regardless of how that experience feels. One thing a great therapist will do, and I know because I have a great therapist, is a great therapist when I walk in the room and say, this person is driving me bananas, and I think they've got a problem. Terry will sit me down and say, okay, Tell me about your experience of that person. What she doesn't say is tell me about that person. Tell me about your experience of that person because my experience of you is not definitive of who you are. Somebody say amen. That's my experience. I don't want to chase an experience of Jesus. I want Jesus, period. Um, Very early memory of prayer. My mother grew up Catholic, uh, still practices her faith now as a Catholic. For a really long time after she married my dad, she put her faith on the back burner, uh, kind of put it off to the side because my dad was not friendly to faith. Now, she still had the, the, the artifacts of her faith practice around the house. She had this huge Bible. It was massive. It was like, had, they had to have used a tractor to get this thing in and out. It was massive. Never been opened, just couldn't even. 
She also had this porcelain statue of Jesus in her room, which apparently, my mom tells me this story, when I was six, I stole. <laughs> which is really to say that my religious journey began with theft. <laughs> I stole Jesus from my mom, and here I am before you now. I walked into the room, and I took this porcelain statue of Jesus, and I went into my room, and I took the statue, and I don't remember this, my mom remembers this. She says that I set the statue down on the edge of my bed. I was like six, maybe seven. I hadn't been to catechism, I hadn't been to like any kind of religious training, I just kind of had these images in my mind. So I set the porcelain statue down on the edge of my bed, and I knelt by my bed, because you're supposed to kneel. It's the way, it's the way it works, and I clasped my hands together. Because that's how, that's how it works. And then I would close my eyes and lean against the bed to pray. Problem being, every time I leaned against the bed, the statue would fall over. <laughs> I would pick it back up, and I would clasp my hands and lean against it, and I would have to pick it back up, and then I would close my head, and, and then have just over and over like this. And that, that's the whole story. <laughs> like, I never got around to the business of actually praying because I couldn't get set up correctly. Let me say that again. I did try hard. I never got around to the business of actually praying because I couldn't get set up correctly. Somebody with me? What I was doing is the thing I've done with really important stuff my whole life. I was confusing and conflating the mechanics with the essence. That is not to say the mechanics don't matter. They do. But they are second to the essence. Did. I do this with, we do this culturally with things like romance. We confuse the mechanics of romance with the essence of romance and we hurt one another. We confuse the mechanics of justice with the essence of justice and we hurt one another. The trick with all these things, specifically with prayer, I know this is important. I know as a Christian, it's important for me to pray. I also don't feel qualified to pray because I don't think I'm going to do it right. And so I don't want to do an important thing poorly so I don't practice it at all. What I needed someone to tell me early on, and I've learned by trial and by grace, is about prayer, you are not going to get it wrong. Prayer is not like Matt. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Mathematics, for the most part, there is one right answer and endless ways to blow. I've found many of those endless ways. Prayer is more like swimming. It's a ways to swim. Front stroke or whatever. But the trick of swimming is if, if you're in the water and you are not drowning, you are swimming. <laughs> That's not to say you cannot grow. Can I get an amen? amen? But all along, as you grow and your body changes and you learn to swim with different strokes, you've always been swimming. You can become more adept and more comfortable, 
but you've always been swimming. I knelt before the Lord when I was six years old, didn't know who he was, didn't know if he heard me, didn't know if he was real. I was a person of prayer. Because the essence of prayer is not my ability to pray. The essence of prayer is that the God of the universe loves me as his son and desires a relationship with me. Here's a story about that, about not getting it wrong. Halloween 2014. Now, I know Halloween's not as big a deal here. Not everyone's perfect. Um, Huge deal where I'm from. Uh, It's one of my favorite holidays. I really like costumes. I have 12 costumes on hand and ready at the go. Um, 12, exactly. There were 13. I had to get rid of one. We'll talk about that another time. My son, 2014, decided for the first time, he'd seen Halloween done, he was young, he's nine now, uh, and he came to me and said, Dad, I, I, want, I want to do Halloween next year, this, this coming year. I said, great. What do you want to be? He said, um, I want to be a superhero. I said, fantastic. Are you thinking Batman, The Flash, something in the DC universe? He said, no. I said, son, listen. Listen to me. You cannot be Superman or you will not live in this house. Uh, this is, I have rules. So um, <laughs> he says, no, dad, I, I don't want to be Superman. I want to be Super Asa. My son's name is Asa Jonathan McRoberts. I want to be Super Asa. I said, Super Asa? Okay. All right. Let's run with that. What does Super Asa wear? He goes in his room. He puts on this outfit. He has these striped socks, these red and white striped socks with his blue pajama pants tucked into him, long sleeve shirt, and he had it. He came out with a, a crown that his auntie Jasmine had made for him with his name on it, it says Asa, and a, a cape, which I didn't know he had a cape. It turns out like a lot of the three-year-olds come with them. Um, <laughs> he walks out and says, I'm ready. And I was like, you are ready. Halloween night. It's dusk, we go out, he's got his little Spider-Man pail to put his candy in. We're going door to door, knocking the door. I say, say trick or treat, is there a trick or treat? And they put the candy in, he's like, this is going to be the greatest night of my life. Just so excited, he's meeting strangers, he's talking to strangers, they're giving him candy. I, like, it's a great holiday. So, about, 15 minutes into this process, he sees the big kids. Now, the big kids are why he wanted to do Halloween because he'd seen them in costumes before. And he turns to me and he says, Dad, Dad, can I, can I go with the big kids? I said, yeah, if you can keep up for a while, you can go with the big kids. So he takes off in a full sprint with his little rubber Crocs around the corner. He's gone for three minutes comes back around the corner, pale, hung heavy, head down. He looks up and he's got a big tear in his eye. Buddy, what happened? Dad, dad one, one of the big kids said that I, I can't just be super ace. I, I, can't, I can't just make it up. I have to pick a real superhero. So now, now I have one of those fatherly dilemmas. Like, how, how do I navigate this moment, you know? 
without injuring someone else's boy. <laughs> and something like wisdom got a hold of my heart. And I knelt down in front of my son, which was no simple task because I was, I was wearing that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an outfit made entirely of duct tape. Uh, it's one of the 12. Um, I knelt down and I said, um, hey, pal, uh, those big kids look pretty great. Yes, they look great. I said, that flash costume that kid's wearing is pretty great. Yes, it is great. Here's the thing. All those kids, they got their ideas from like a comic book or a TV show or a movie. And then they went to like a Walmart or some department store and they bought their costumes. You invented a superhero and then you designed your own costume. I think that's really special. He went, yeah? I went, yeah! <laughs> you want to get some candy? Yes! <laughs> Do you want to get more candy than all those big kids combined? Yes! And that's how we exact vengeance. <laughs> and vengeance, vengeance is not the point of the story, it's just a bonus. If I'm honest, I mean this, if I'm honest about my spiritual life, about my prayer life, it looks a lot like my son's Halloween costume. I'm making a lot of this up as I go along. I'm really just using the stuff I have on hand. Some of it just doesn't match. And I'm just telling you, the Father in heaven is not like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you with the sound of the socks. That's not happening. I am received by the one who made me because he made me. And how I show up and the words I use are a distant second to the heart he's put in me to talk to him at all. You and I both know a world full of parents who do not talk to their children. A world full of kids who don't know how to talk to their parents. The heart of the Father who created all things is just show up. I don't care how. I don't care how long it's been. I don't care what kept you to begin with. I don't care what your first 15, 20, 100 words are. Just show up. You're mine. I love you. I'm proud of you. That's the heart of the Father, and that is the essence of prayer. Amen. Thank you. The following year, my son decided to wear that flash costume, and I wore that same duct tape outfit that I had worn on Halloween for 15 years straight. <laughs> that year, my son stepped in to someone else's tradition. Someone else's expression. Someone else made that up for him. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with leaning on someone else's expression. Can I get an amen? Because while it can be beautiful and free and necessary and good to just say it the way it is in the mind, sometimes, and you know this full well, you don't have work for what's going on inside your own soul. Can I get an amen? So sometimes it's good to lean on someone else's words. My young life leader, the person who discipled me into relationship with Christ, gave me this. 
When I was 18, I still use it. It's a very simple prayer book that provides me with a scripture for every day, some prayers that I can read. And oftentimes, because I talk a lot, you know this, I'm tired of my own words. And I need someone else's words to carry what's going on in my soul. And the Lord is just as happy with me showing up and leaning on someone else's expression. The year after that, I joined my son, I abandoned my duct tape costume, and I became the Batman. That's a lot to carry as a dad. Now that's all about words. Sometimes words aren't enough. Can I get an amen? So there are two images here. You can really see one and the other one you can't. The one on your right, on my left, is a Rembrandt piece uh, called Return of the Prodigal Son. And I love the painting. The story about it, uh, later on down the line by a guy named Henry Nouwen, is one of my favorite stories about art. Henry Nouwen, uh, one of the great thinkers in spiritual practice over the last hundred or so years, brilliant thinker, excellent writer, a man of words, came to a place in his own life, and his own practice, wherein his own words failed him. He no longer had the capacity to pray about what was going on. He couldn't write about what was going on in his life. There was a lot happening in his life at the time. So he actually traveled to the place. He had had this, this Rembrandt piece in a card on his desk. He traveled to the place where this Rembrandt actually sits on a wall. And Henry sat in front of that painting for two or three days and just took it in. And you've been there when some visual piece got a hold of your soul in a way that words can't. Maybe it was a television show. Maybe it was a movie. Maybe it was a still piece. Maybe it's that photo of your family, of that friend that you keep going back to. There's something about the way our souls are spoken to in visuals. So he sat and he just let this art piece unpack what was going on in his soul. And he wrote a book called Return of the Prodigal Son about his experience with this art and the way art unpacked his soul. And I think the Lord not only receives, but invites that kind of practice. When your words fail you, when other people's words fail you, when words in general fail you, language should never be the end of our practice of prayer. The piece on your left uh, by a friend of mine uh, named Dylan Mortimer, who lives in Kansas City. Uh, Dylan lives with cystic fibrosis. And if you know anything about CF, the average life expectancy of someone with CF is somewhere between 33 and 38 years. When Dylan turned 30, as an artist and a pastor, if you can possibly imagine, his words started to fail him. Here he was as a person who was facing his own mortality. And we just don't create spiritual resources for kids in their 20s who are looking at death. So Dylan, as a visual artist, started creating these pieces. This is a pretty tame piece, but he started showing it. He would wake up in the middle of the night, quite literally scared of dying. And he would travel to the church where he had his art studio, and he would build these large-scale pieces about his disease, about lungs, about mucus, about suffocating, about breathing, about air. And he would spend all night making these pieces, and then he would take them outside and he would light them on fire. 
And he said, I didn't have anything to say to God because I was so mad that he let me have this stupid disease. So I would make art and I would light it on fire. He said, about a year later, I started to really sense, feel that he was with me when I did that. And it rewoke the desire in me to talk to him. Um, I got dads, friends who are dads whose kids have CF. They're five. They're six. They're mad. They're mad at their parents. And they don't know how to talk about it. And the heart of a good father says, that's awful. And I don't care how long it takes and how you need to express it. I, and I don't have any answers for you because this is just hard, but I want to be here with you. So if you're just mad and you want to light things on fire, I'll be here when you do that. So when uh, my buddy and I put together this book, what we did with the book uh, was provided just enough language for folks who were hung up on language. Not so much that we would overwhelm you. So I wrote 40 short prayers, things like this. May love be stronger in me than the fear of the pain that comes with caring. And then Scott paired each one of these prayers with an image. Because if you're done with words, maybe the image doesn't. And we started filtering these out into the lives of people who had quit on prayer. And we kept hearing back from folks, I haven't prayed in 20, 30 years, but something about that jar spoke to me about the shape of my heart. Um, similar idea. May I learn to make good out of what I'm given rather than only make sense of it. And the meditative image that goes with it. All this on the same, uh, like on, on the same wavelength as this quote from, from one of my favorite spiritual directors named James Martin. He says, the right way to pray is whatever works for you. What works? What I love about this is that there's stuff that doesn't work and that doesn't mean you're broken. It just doesn't work for you. Also, this season, certain things will work. And next season, those same things probably won't work. So let's spend a couple minutes here. And then we'll wrap up in a moment. How do you pray? What's it look like for you to pray? As an example, and I'll kickstart this way. Who can, who struggles to pray sitting down and being still besides me? Hands up. Yeah, tough. Okay. Who prays in the car? Okay. What else? What's it look like for you to pray? Give me some examples of ways. Riding a bicycle. Riding a bicycle. Uh, is it like, do you get on the bike to go pray? Is like once you're on the bike, you're riding and you kind of, like, how's that work? Well, then I can pray for people. I, I pray for things I see. Okay. So you even just, you get on the bike and you're, you're thankful that you can bike. That's good. And then as you're driving, you're, as, you're, as you're biking by things, you're, you're praying in response to what you're seeing. What else? I have to wake up and 
That's good. So suppose, as a, so at night you wake up and there's stuff in your mind and you pay attention instead of just get annoyed and try to go back to sleep. You pay attention, like what's keeping me up and maybe there's a call there and you respond to that and pray. That's good. That's very good. Just when you wake up, it's time to pray. That's good. That's good. That's good. We'll, here, did you have a thing? Really? And then say it out loud. So you would write it out, write it out first. first? And then pray it out loud. Would you, would you read it off the page or you would yeah. write it and then... I would read it, but sometimes it would kind of go off. Yeah. It. it would help me to focus. I've, 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 one of the practices for me in terms of writing, my, my brain, as you can tell, goes a million miles an hour. I'm, like so many thoughts. And actually stopping to write the prayer down slows my thoughts down. So that I actually can concentrate on one thing at a time. That's, that's exactly what I did for me. That's powerful. I love that. And then over here. Pray on short prayers. Short prayers. Anywhere. Yeah. In the shower. And yeah. And so just like the short prayer, you don't make it too long. You have a thought. It's worth offering. That's good. That's very good. Over there in the back. So at, like, as you're, are there certain things, what's your name? Natalie, Natalie are, are there certain kinds of, uh, of creativity that like are more apt to be prayerful for you? Yeah, songs, like spiritual songs. Okay. That's good. That's a great discipline. A few more. What's it look like? Right. Because I find myself, I struggle with sitting down and prayerfully praying. Yes. Um, I find myself saying a prayer spontaneously in a moment of need, a moment of doubt, a moment of fear or whatever. And those are small prayers. Yes. That's often the way prayers come. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Here, one more, and then a couple on the back. Yeah. There was this man, Yeah. And he said, you can pray while you're cleaning the toilet, or he had to work in the kitchen, and he hated that. Yes. So he was praying while he was cleaning the potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, praying while cleaning. And depending on the toilet, that could be, I mean, that could be, that could elicit a lot of, yeah. Lord God, what's wrong with my friends? Yes. Is that a, is that a time you set aside? So, like, like you do you wake up ahead of time? You set an alarm? You do. Okay. Yes. Being able to take a step out and say a little prayer, you know, not more than five seconds. Yes, it's good. That I found a very 
what do you, if you don't mind my asking, what do you think changed? There was a season when you were more intercessory during the day and then it changed. You know, do you have a feeling for what changed? It's, it's just the external pressures from okay. work and everything else. Just the mind is so occupied. Yeah. I couldn't take a step back. It's good. And that I miss. That's good. Any more? Yes, in the back. Sir. Yes. Praying is simply being in touch with God and that can be listening or speaking. It's a good word. Yes. I think the same way yesterday we talked about what friendships in the calendar are to meet people. Yes, ma'am. Prayer is something that you can put in the calendar to meet other people to pray. So sometimes if I was by myself, I would not pray that time. Because, but because we put in the calendar prayer meeting with somebody else, it's kind of forcing to go there and yes. then we have a good time for praise. That's very good. It's good to put her Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, part of what I'm doing here and part of, is this, this conversation, I hope you feel what I feel when we have this conversation, is there's this sort of lifting of the weird, odd heaviness and oddity that comes with like talking about prayer. Even the idea... Hey, put it on the calendar. It's a practice, like exercise. And you know, if you've been alive more than, let's just call it 24 years, uh, that if you don't block out time to exercise, life will steal that time from you. So the practical things that come with the practice of prayer, those are our points of conversation. And what frees us to practice this, what frees us is that we are in community with other people who we know your spiritual health changes my life. Somebody say amen. amen. And if I know that you know that, then you and I can be in conversation and you can say, I used to do this and this isn't working for me. And that person would be like, I'm having the exact same experience. What are you going to do? I think I'm going to try this. I think I'll try that too. How many folks have that moment? They're like, you know what? I should. I should probably try to write some more stuff down because my mind's moving too fast. Having these conversations as a regular practice as a community is part of how we maintain this constant ask, and this is how we'll wrap it up, when we come back to the Lord as a people, not just as individuals, and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he'll speak to you through one another and reshape the way you hear, the way you listen, and the way you speak. Will you stand with me and I'll pray a blessing and then you can go get coffee. Holy Spirit, thank you for your constant presence. I thank you for your gracious ear. I pray specifically for my sisters and brothers in front of me now, as I pray for myself, that we would have that deep assurance that connecting with you, that knowing you begins with the love of the Father for us and that you are 
more constant than we are. That you're more faithful than we are. And then not even our shortcomings in devotion, not even our shortcomings in the practice of prayer can be obstacle enough to prevent you from having the relationship you desire with us. You are relentless in your love and in your pursuit of us. May that be a source of joy. That we return to you constantly in joy. And in joy, Lord, teach us to pray. That we might know you, be known by you, and pass on the love that we have in you to those who don't recognize it quite yet. Amen? Amen. Hour-long break. We're back in here at 10. Oh, what time are we back in here? Okay, great. 15 minutes? Okay.
Amen. How are you? Doing well? How's the hard drive space? Got all the space? Um, before we do this next uh, before I do this next talk, uh, there will be a bit of reading in this next talk. Uh, so, any thoughts? Conversation? Anything you wanted to bring? Our last session, like an insight, um, sort of a, an addition, something you wanted to make sure was said aloud before we move along. About prayer, about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think part of it, so my understanding of what he's doing there is that that teaching was specifically kind of warring against the kind of, so for, for professional cats like me, we had a microphone and we do the kind of prayer thing. Part of what I think Jesus was doing there is saying that the heart of prayer, like ultimately it's, it's the conversation between God and the ones he loves. And it's something that happens in the inner sanctuary. And that the, I think what he's after was don't imitate the folks who sound good because they and to try to like your words become someone else's words and they won't be yours long term. I think that's part of what he was after. I don't think it was necessarily a matter of like that's the only way to go about it because Jesus himself obviously prayed with people with you know, people had eyes on him, which is why they were like, hey, how, why does it work that way for you? I think it was a little bit of like a, like a kind of a counterbalance, at least as a teaching at the time. Any other thoughts, reflections, things you felt? Yes, sir. Yes. Not necessarily I would be physically present. That's good. At one place, uh, or at one time, uh, but be joined in spirit. Yes. Yeah, and it's a way to be, jo- a way to be present to other folks. And to actually believe, and that's part of it, 
to honestly believe that insofar as I am praying for people that I know and love, there really is a, a, an actual connection there because it's, some, it's a way that Christ has bonded us together. And that if you are elsewhere and you're not well, as an example, and I'm not just saying this, this is it, m both my kids apparently I found out last night are sick. And so I, and I, can't, I can't be there because I'm in Switzerland. Um, but I can be in prayer with my wife. And so we prayed over the phone a little bit last night. It's a way for me to be present here even though I'm not physically present. And there is that connection. Yes? Yes. Yeah. So part of what you're getting after is that when we when we do pray together for things, and this is a and this is the thing. Like any talk on any of this stuff, you can do. We can do ten or twelve sessions. One of the one of the things we can dig into really deeply is, is if you're praying for someone. Uh, it's, I can't remember my brother's name, but if you're praying for someone, if you're praying with a group of people, to do the check-in later on. So like as a group of people, when you're praying, to, if you're committed over the long haul, over time, you remember the things you prayed for, you come back and you get to pay attention to, hey, this changed for you. Even to the point when you will have, and I've lived here too, there are things that I went to prayer for, I forgot it changed. I forgot I went to prayer for it. Uh, I don't know if I'll tell that story. I will. Uh, I broke my shoulder. I didn't, break, I didn't break my shoulder. My shoulder was broken by a superior soccer player uh, who tripped me while I was playing soccer. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep uh, on either side, and I couldn't play guitar. And I went to uh, my church gathering and there was uh, the group of people who said, we'd like to pray for you so that you could sleep and so you could play. And a few months later, my sleep, had, you, know, a, you know, a few weeks later, my, my sleep had improved and my, my arm was much better. And I'd, I'd just flat out forgotten. Like it was just like, oh yeah, well my shoulder's better. And, and Dave and his wife who had prayed for me came and said, so how's it going with the shoulder? And I went, oh. It's great. And then it became not a matter of just, hey, my shoulder's better, but like the community of Christ came around me and were part of my actual physical betterment. And now we get to celebrate the work of Jesus among us, as opposed to just Justin got better, which is a better story. That's really good. Um, this talk, um, like there'd be a bit of reading uh, this isn't always like the heart of the matter, uh, like together when it's hard, uh, but it is, this is one of those talks uh, together when it's hard that is, um, like it's not always the heart of the matter, but it is a necessary conversation. Can I get an amen? Like, you know, sick relationships are relationships in which we're always talking about what's wrong, uh, but other kinds of sick relationships are relationships in which we don't talk about what's wrong. Um, or when it goes wrong. Um, the, sh the, the shape of the life of Jesus, he had a relationship with the Father, he had the work of his life, and then he chose people to live his life with. And as we got into last night, there just isn't a way. 
There just isn't a way to live life with other people without suffering injury. It's part of being human. What's it look like to live there? What's it look like to practice that? What's it look like to live together when it's hard? The other way I like to say it is this. The circumstance puts us together. You chose to show up at a church. You chose to show up at a workplace, at a school. Circumstance will put you in the room with people. Intentionality over the course of time will actually bind you together because life wants to pull you apart from life-giving people and practices. But it is forgiveness in community that actually keeps us from falling apart. Christ exemplifies all of these, and we're going to look at the way forgiveness actually plays out um, in the life of Jesus. Um, Looking through the lens of Judas. Judas. Judas is the bad guy. He's just the, I mean, historically, Judas is the bad guy. He's the bad guy to which you compare other bad guys. He is the metric for bad guy. How bad is the Joker? On the Judas scale, he's pretty bad. How bad is Darth Vader? He's pretty good Judas. He's a bad guy. When I think of bad guys, when I think of Judas's place in the scriptures, he's a bad guy. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. That's what I think of when I think of Judas. Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ with a kiss. That's Judas in my mind. But that's not the way the disciples remember him entirely. Luke 22, 1 through 3. Luke writes, Now the festival of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. How? This is a man who's been with Jesus for almost three years. You're still susceptible to the influence of the devil. Come on, Judas. Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple, of the temple police, about how he might betray him to them. So not only had it been three years that Judas had been with Christ, not only was he susceptible to the influences of the devil, he went and made a plan to betray Jesus. It wasn't a passionate moment. He had a plan. This is the way Mark remembers it. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. We've all been injured by people. It's a different thing if someone actually plans it, strategizes, and then this, the kiss. You've got to be really close to somebody to kiss them on the cheek. The worst injuries we have are from people who have that kind of access to our lives. And this is part of why Judas is this person in my mind, in so many of our minds. You are the worst. And he is. He betrayed Christ. 
And it was after years of reading these texts, living as a pastor, having friends, being married, being in relationship with people that I loved, suffering injury, injuring others, that the word of God began to speak to me differently. How many of you know that in different seasons, it is so necessary to continue to read the same scriptures over and over again? You're never done reading the Bible because the Bible is never done reading you. And these words jumped out off this page and just grabbed me by the shoulders and said, pay attention. Judas the betrayer, this is what Mark and Luke both say, and is in other places, including Acts. Judas, one of the 12. These are different witnesses. These texts are in times to different populaces of people. And both of these storytellers went out of their way and used the same phrase to describe Judas by saying, Judas, he was one of us, and then went on with the story. Judas, he was one of us. What we know from our own experience is when someone does something terrible, that can be who they are for the rest of their lives. Can I get an amen? That's who you are. You can think of uh, you know, sports stories in which you could have had a wonderful career. You missed that shot. You didn't block that goal. The ball went between your legs at first base, and it was 1985, and you were playing for the Boston Red Sox, and the Mets went on to win the World Series, and your name is Billy Buckner. I'm just saying it happens to people. What the disciples wanted to make sure is like, yes, he did these things, but that's not all of who he was. He was one of us. There's another element to that. It wasn't just about Judas. I think there was a bit of humility for the disciples. Because among the disciples was Peter. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm going. You're going to find right there. Peter. Peter, who comes out looking pretty good in the long run. I mean, the man becomes Pope. But I'm going to suggest that Peter's story is not altogether dissimilar from Judas's story. This is Peter's story, same timeline. Again, he asked them, who are you looking for? This is in the garden. His people were bearing down on Jesus. They've been led there by Judas. Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So a couple things here. One, I'm reading from John. Partially because John has a really interesting and unique relationship with Peter. And it comes out in the way that, Peter, that John writes about Peter. Just the detail that he knows the slave's name, as if John like, went to that guy afterwards like, I'm going to record this. What was your name? <laughs> Malchus, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry about him. <laughs> Peter not only 
he's carrying a sword around, but decides to use it. And not just to like stand in front of Jesus, he tries to kill a man. Right there in the garden. He's swinging at his head. Peter. After the crucifixion, and this is the story we know. Just before the crucifixion, this is the story we know. Jesus has been led away. And when they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And the among them is like he sat around the crowd of people that Jesus has been ministering to. People that Jesus wanted, he wanted these people to know that he was the Messiah, that the redemption was on its way, the kingdom was present and coming. These are the people that Peter's sitting among. And this is what happens. A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not, bitterly. And after an interval of about an hour, Still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept. Peter, like almost all of the men, when Jesus was taken away, not only abandoned Christ, but given the opportunity to say, I'm with him, he saved my life, he said, I don't even know the man. Once, twice, three times, by people who knew better. But that's not the end of Peter's story. Can I get an amen? Because Peter's story kind of picks up later on in John 21, where he is restored to Christ. But the setup, the lead up to his restoration is pretty important, because it looks like this. Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. To the people who are still disciples, people who have been following Jesus, who are still around, they're looking to Peter for leadership. Because he was Christ's guy. He was one of Jesus' men. And they said, what do we do now? And Peter said, I'm quitting. Where was Peter when Jesus found him? He was fishing. Peter says, it was three years. It must have been a mistake. I'm going back. I'm quitting. I'm going back fishing. And not only does he do it, he takes other people with him. Which is actually where Jesus meets him next time, isn't it? Because Jesus does for Peter what Jesus does for all of us. You can't fall far enough back that he won't come back and get you. Jesus meets Peter where he met him in the beginning. And this is that scene. I love this scene. And back to John. And now pay attention to the details that John includes in the story about his friend Peter. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? I mean, this is like, he knows they have no fish. 
This is literally Jesus standing on the shore saying, so you guys went back fishing, huh? How'd that work out? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast it out on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Like, he's a carpenter telling the fishermen, I mean, it's like, it's like going to a sports game. It's like going to like a Major League American baseball game and sitting in the front row and shouting at the man, at the, like, choke up on the bat. But come on. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Watch John. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the way John talks about himself. <laughs> hey, Pete, I know, like, you know, you got the big job and all, but, like, he really liked me. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, he, John wants you to know that he not only recognized Jesus first, but he's the one that told Peter. It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked. I don't need to know that. But John wants me to know Peter is new. Put on some clothes, and jumped into the sea. <laughs> Which is not how that's done. Then he follows it up. But the other disciples came in the boat. Peter jumped out into the water, swimming with his clothes on, and the other disciples were like, you are a real mess. <laughs> For they are not far from the land, only a few hundred yards off. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Somebody say amen. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Because Peter forgot where he had been days before. And he said to them, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fashion your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, watch, he said to him, follow me. What were the first words Peter heard from Christ? Follow me. There was no place so far back that Peter could fall that Jesus would not reach all the way back and say, we'll start over again. 
Now, this, Peter denies Jesus, leaves the life, leaves the team, abandons the mission, and Jesus receives him again. Because the foundation of Peter's life in Christ is forgiveness and grace. This is the easy part of the teaching. Here's the hard part. It's not the betrayal of Judas that puts Jesus on the cross. Can I get an amen? It's sin. Judas's sin, Peter's sin, my sin, your sin, and puts Jesus on the cross. Which is to say this, the primary difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter stuck around long enough to find out that his failures are not the end and that he isn't defined by them. And there's a lot of theological conversation you had around exactly how this stuff plays out in the heavenlies. I don't really know. I don't know. But you ask me face to face, was there forgiveness available for Judas? I think so. And I think sometimes we just don't want to receive the forgiveness available to us. We don't trust it enough for us. Which leads to this question. What failure of yours have you allowed to define you? What failure of yours have you allowed to define you? What's that thing? Teenagers do a really good job of having this conversation among them that if you really knew me, you wouldn't. And then when they say that, they tend to mean there's, there are things about themselves, their patterns, the way they live, that if you really knew this. We forget to ask that question as adults. We forget to search our souls. At some point, we just sort of adopt and embrace these things we consider our foundational faults. The problem becomes that we end up doing this. What failure someone else's have you allowed to define them? There are people, even right now in my mind, I've got names and faces in my mind who are predominantly defined in my emotional landscape by the things they've done wrong to me or to others. That's who they are. That's just not the way Jesus sees people. Um, let me do this. This is from uh, a page in that prayer book. It's one of the prayers I come back to over and over for myself. May I never grow tired of starting over or helping others do the same. My hope is always in renewal and resurrection. Hope for our community is not that we're going to get it right someday. Can I get an amen? My hope is that on the other side of every misstep and every failure, there is resurrection. The hope of Christ is resurrection, not in rightness. Which is to say that there is no fault, there is no failure, there is no damage so deep that he cannot reconcile, redeem, and restore. So can I tell you a personal story? Um, it goes like this. Um, this is a story called Meyer McRoberts and Money. I'm the McRoberts part of that. Uh, Meyer's a friend of mine. Um, beginning in, like I said, 1999, I started playing music, uh, which meant I, I had to travel quite a bit. My wife and I were on the road uh, traveling between 100 and 150 days a year for about a decade. Um, it was a great time. It was wonderful. We didn't have kids at the time. 
Um, the internet became a thing. Some of you don't know that there was a time before it was a thing. <laughs> the rest of us aren't sure it was a good idea. Um, And uh, I was told by my record label, you need to have a website and a web store so that when people want to buy things from you, okay, so I had a web store, but having a web store meant if someone ordered something with the speed of the internet, that once they hit send, it was supposed to somehow physically manifest before them within seconds. But I was gone for weeks at a time, sometimes months. So if someone ordered a CD, now a CD was, I'm joking. So um, <laughs> if someone ordered some, something from my site, I wasn't home. My friend Meyer, my name is Jer Meyer. Jeremy comes to me and says, hey man, I believe in you. We've been friends for a long time. Why don't I run your store? I said, wow, that'd be fantastic. In order to run my store, Jeremy has to have a few things. He has to have access to my house, my garage, where I keep all my stuff. Has to have a key. Has to have my garage code. Has to have my bank account information. Credit card information. And now you know where the story's going. My wife was an art major with a religion minor. I was an English major with a philosophy minor. Most of that Educationally, academically, it was an avoidance of numbers. Not good math people. And so we discovered over the course of eight or nine months these irregularities on our credit card bill. They're just irregularities. That's very strange. Now, we knew what was happening, but we weren't going to admit to ourselves what was happening. You've been there. That can't really be happening, even though you know what's what's happening. And eventually, my wife, who's a type one on the Enneagram, so she couldn't deal anymore with something being out of place, said, you have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. I had to talk to him, so I I emailed him like a brave man. And he didn't respond. So I emailed him again. I typed faster the second time. (laughs) And then I texted him and then I called him and he didn't respond. And then I called him again and weeks went by and then months went by and then years went by. And I didn't see my friend for seven years. Uh, yeah, well, no, I canceled that one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not that stupid. <laughs> I'm stupid enough to make the stories work. Um, I heard rumors. He was out of town. I, was, I got angry. Because that's what I want to do when I'm hurt by someone is I want to hurt you back. Can I just be honest? This is just what I want to do. I want you to feel the way I felt. That's what's natural in me. So his friends what happened. He owes me $3,000. 
Why? He had my credit card. I just started airing it out to every one of his friends I could talk to because I was trying to hurt him. So then I finally hear after seven years, he's back in town and he was living with his dad. I found out where his dad lived and I hatched a plan. Now here's the thing. That whole notion uh, that when you make plans, God laughs, it's 100% true. So here was my plan. My plan was to show up and intimidate him, frighten him, potentially injure him, and then maybe get my money back. I was gonna show up at his dad's house at 1.45 a.m. because that's the scariest time to show up. I was gonna knock on the door. He was gonna open the door. He was gonna try to close the door. I had it all worked out in my mind. He was gonna try to close the door and I was gonna step in and put my hand on the door. I was gonna grab him by the collar and drag him outside and we were gonna have a talk and I was gonna use a lot of this motion as I spoke with him. I'd had it all planned out. And as I planned it out in my mind, the Holy Spirit was like, okay, we'll see about that one. Plan A, the element of plan A. I showed up, it was 1.40. I waited five minutes. I knocked on that door at 1.45. And he opened the door. And that's when I went out the window. Because that was my friend. He said, hey, ma'am. And I said, hey, ma'am. And the back of my mind was like, that's not the script. He said, I'm really sorry. And I said, I know. What do you mean you know? (laughs) And then he said, I really want our friendship back. And I said, me too. What are you doing? (laughs) And we started talking. And he and I hatched a plan. And the plan was this. That every month, once a month, before the 15th of the month, which was when my bills were due, he had to show up at my house with cash or a check. He couldn't send me the money, couldn't wire me the money, couldn't digitally transfer me the money. There was no Venmo or any of that stuff. He had to show up at my doorstep with cash or check, hand it directly to me, and then we had to talk for at least 10 minutes. And we could talk about anything except the debt. And he would do that until he had paid it all back and we'd regained the pattern of seeing each other face to face. Now, that's a decent story. Would it shock you if I told you? Um, because um, a few months later, after he'd paid off his debt, he said, what are you doing in June? I said, what do you, you got going? He said, I'm getting married. Would you do the wedding? I said, yeah. So that's my buddy, Jer, and that's the woman of his dreams, and that's me looking slightly homeless uh, in a tuxedo-ish thing, doing a wedding. And I got to do his wedding. I don't get to do this guy's wedding if I define him by his wrongs. He doesn't get me to be the officiant of his wedding if he defines me by my betrayal of him. And that's a pretty decent story. But would it shock you if I told you it got better? 
because I moved through these questions, what failure of yours have you allowed to define you? I, I have an anger problem. I get mad. I don't like people betraying me. I don't like being lied to. I get mad. What failure of someone else's have you allowed to define them? I've got a lot of relationships, a lot of relationships, and that means I've got a lot of potential to get hurt. And I define people by their probability of injury. How likely is it that you're going to do something that's going to bust me up? I'm learning to ask this question about all of it. What can you do with this, Jesus? You see, we'll talk about this tomorrow morning on Sunday. When there's injury in a relationship, you don't get back what you lost. Can I say it again? When there's injury in relationship and community, you don't get back what you lost. Did you notice that when Jesus, after the resurrection, showed up, people who knew him before it didn't recognize him? We'll talk about why that is tomorrow. There's something new on the other side of restoration. Resurrection always looks new. Last story. Same story, last phase of the story. Jesus talks about knowing your neighbors. My wife and I take that literally. So anywhere we move in, we've lived two places since we were married. Um, we get to know our actual neighbors. Names, addresses, kids, whole nine. We have people at our house all the time. We'll have between 10 and 15 parties a year just so we can get to know our neighbors. We love our neighbors because that's what the Lord asked us to do. Neighbors in our old neighborhood uh, had to move out. New family moved in. Some folks who uh, immigrated from, uh, from South America. They moved from Quito in, uh, in Ecuador. And dad did not speak English real well. He was having a really hard time finding a job. He got a long-term uh, labor job in San Francisco. We live about 45 minutes from San Francisco. So he had to figure out a way to get himself to San Francisco. So he sold a bunch of their stuff to buy this car. It was not a nice car. So that he could go to this job in San Francisco. Again, he doesn't speak or read English real well. And so week two of this job that he had, that he waited two or three months to find, and they were struggling already, he parked in an area that he wasn't supposed to park. And there was a sign there that he And someone called and had his car towed. Now, I don't know how it works here, uh, but in America, when your car is towed, uh, if you find it within 30 minutes, that's fine. It only costs you like three to $400. But if it goes into the next day, um, they ask for both kidneys, um, just astronomical. He couldn't find his car, he would call, he wouldn't understand what the officer was saying. Two days went by and they told him it was gonna cost him $900 to get this car out of impound. And I know the story because his daughter showed up at my doorstep, knocked on the door. She was holding this binder full of baseball cards, American baseball cards. And she said, um, this is what's going on with my family. She was eight at the time. My son had a crush on her. I'm hoping it works out long term. Um, she's great. 
Um, and we're trying to get this car back. Father's car was towed. She didn't know the dollar amount quite yet. She just said my father's car was towed. Um, he used to collect baseball cards, American baseball cards. Can you find out how much these are worth? Now, I used to collect baseball cards when I was a young man. And the, the times have changed. And baseball cards are not worth very much anymore. They used to be. But they're just not. And so as I open up, I'm flipping through this and I'm looking up and down the cards and her. I know this isn't worth a lot of money, but I don't really know that much about baseball. And I got this friend, though, who's a baseball aficionado. He's kind of into gambling. He used to gamble with my credit cards, in fact. His name is Jeremy Meyer. <laughs> so I called Jer and I said, hey, um, you have a few minutes to help me out with something? He said, sure, what's going on? I said, I'm going to send you some pictures of these baseball cards. Can you tell, much, tell me how much money I have on hand here? He said, sure. So I send him pictures of each page. He writes me back and he says, you've got about $45 worth of cards in there. I said, yeah, okay. He said, what are you doing selling baseball cards? Well, it's not for me. Hold on. I never, I never get through this part of the story. It's not for me. It's, uh, it's for my neighbor. It's like, oh, yeah, your son likes his daughter. It's like, yeah, that guy. <laughs> what happened? His car was towed. He's trying to sell some stuff. He's like, how much does he need? He needs like 900 bucks. It's like, dude. It's like, yeah, I know. <sighs> well, he's, Jeremy says, give me a couple minutes. I'll call you back. I hang up. I'm about to walk back down and hand the cards back to Sasha, who's his daughter, and say, I'm really sorry, this isn't that helpful. And Jeremy calls me back, he goes, I'll I, I got it. I said, what? He goes, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the cards. And I said, man, that's really generous, but like, you know, we're still like $850 short, so. He goes, no, you don't get it. I'll buy them for 900 bucks. Bro, are you kidding? And take those cards back and hand them over and tell your neighbor everybody needs a second chance. I mean, that car was a junk. But for the rest of that guy's life, his neighbor preached the gospel to him because I didn't define Jeremy by his injury of me. He didn't define me by my injury of him. And that moment wouldn't be possible before the injury. Can you hear me say it? The depth and richness of relationship that happens in restoration after the process of forgiveness. Because what you hear in my story with Jeremy wasn't just me saying, hear me say it. Hey, bro, not a big deal. It's okay. Because it wasn't okay to steal my money. And when you've been hurt by people, it's not okay. But on the other side of a process of forgiveness, you show up at my house once a month, I'm gonna sit down and talk. There is resurrection life available to relationships and to community. And in that resurrection life, the possibility for newness in the world around us is utterly endless. Circumstances will put us together. The decisions we make and intentionality of putting one another on the calendar will bind us together. It is forgiveness 
that doesn't just keep us from falling apart, but actually renews our community so that we honestly become a community that looks like the resurrected Christ. The kind of community that can preach the gospel to folks and say, there is no place so deep that you can fall that Christ cannot come and catch you. That there's no, so, there's no wrong so deep in your life that Christ can't reach into. There's no wrong you've done to someone else that Christ can't reach into and get you. The process and the practice of forgiveness, the essential, integral element of life together. So no, we don't want to hang out when it's hard all the time. But it's going to get hard sometimes. And so asking this question, Jesus, what can you do with this? What can you do with the wrongs done? What can you do with the darkness between? What can you do with the things we can do nothing with? Two quick, one caveat and one encouragement. Sometimes the answer that Jesus gives to this question sounds a little bit like this. I'm going to do something with this, but it won't have anything to do with you. Because there are some injuries, and some of you are already thinking about these in the room. There's some injuries that all you can offer someone is forgiveness. But you're not going to look for reconciliation. Because that's not your job. There are abuses that are delved out by people oftentimes in power over us. It's not your job to go seek reconciliation. But it is absolutely essential for your own heart and practice that you can lean into forgiveness and say, I won't be defined by your injury of me either. I won't define you by my injury. I'm going to let go of and cast onto the cross the power your wrongdoing has over my life. That's what forgiveness is. Sometimes you don't get to reconciliation and you don't get to restoration. But in all of it, the hope whether you and I get to see it in a relationship or whether we trust Jesus to do that in the hearts and the minds of folks who've wronged us beyond our ability to reconcile is this. May I believe that newness is possible. The foundational hope of Christian life entirely. Um, can I borrow your fingers for a second? Would you guys stand with me briefly? Um, I was questioning this. Sam, can I borrow your guitar? I was wondering whether or not I was going to do this, and I'm, I'm feeling like it. Um, if you'd just flip through those slides. If you'd sing this with me, I would, uh, I'd really appreciate it. Oh, 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 oh,
Justin. Um, let me pray for, actually, they're probably going to pray for us in there too, aren't they? So I won't pray for our lunch. We won't take that away from the Bibelheim people. They want to do that for us. Instead, I'll just pray to close our session, okay? Gracious God, um, we thank you so much for the burden that is lifted off of our shoulders and off of our hearts and souls to have all of our failures and sins um, taken to the cross of Jesus. And we ask that uh, the freedom that comes from that would be fresh and real to our experience in community with one another. I ask that you would, by your spirit, teach us what it means to love and to forgive and to seek uh, reconciliation and restoration with one another. We ask that the power that was at work raising Jesus from the dead would be at work in our lives and in our hearts and in our church such that even the hurts and sins the ways that we've injured and wronged one another, um, that they would be transformed by your grace into opportunities for us to grow stronger in you and in love for one another. We know that our church, that churches like ours, that these are the only places on earth where, uh, where your resurrection power can be manifest in quite this way. We know that you plan to do this with all of creation. So we pray that you would take the new creations that are each of our lives and that you would raise them up out of the ashes and the dust and the darkness and bring beauty 
and forgiveness and hope and restoration in our midst. Thank you for meeting us by your grace this morning. Thank you for the work you're doing in each of our hearts. Continue to do that work throughout this weekend and in the days to come. For we trust Jesus for his work in our lives. And we make our prayer together in his name. Amen. Amen. Any announcements from you, Rita? Uh, just very short one. So the youth will meet in 15 minutes to leave to go uh, on the party on the mountain. And we have in three minutes our lunch. So it would be great if we uh, just can move over and they will be gracious that we are on time for lunch. And then we have some time afterwards and we meet back at two here and 10, 15 minutes earlier we start singing again. Okay, a good miteinander.